Coming up today on Lockdown Hornets, we talk with Rick Bennell about the Last Dance documentary and also in this week's edition of Hidden Hornets History. Stay tuned for the entire episode to find out what a young rookie Kobe Bryant told Rick Bennell about not playing for the Charlotte Hornets and this. <laughs> Sam was amazing. <laughs> Number three. You are Locked On Hornets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. In a minute, cause we live. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On Hornets. It's your team every day, local experts on the number one daily sports podcast network. Today's episode of Locked On Hornets is brought to you by Built Bar, the best tasting energy bar on the market. You might be watching the Last Dance documentary. You get inspired by the I want to be like Mike song. Well, this is how you do it. You get Built Bar. One way you get that is by going to BuiltBar.com using promo code LOCKEDON to get $10 off of your first box. So again, that's BuiltBar.com. Dot com promo code locked on. We often have the experts talk about the Charlotte Hornets as well as just other trending topics going on in the NBA. And one expert we have on every week, it's Rick Bennell of the Charlotte Observer joining us once again. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Rick underscore Bennell. Rick, thank you so much once again for the time. How are you? You know, this weekend I was listening to the um, the podcast and they're oh, always no. educational. They're always educational. <laughs> I have looked through my press guide forever, and I can't find a Lexi Ajansa anywhere uh-huh. in the all-time roster. I don't think you're looking hard enough, Rick. He's in there, Alexis Ajansa, immediately upon uh, hearing, uh, not knowing exactly how these prospects would turn out. I thought of Alexis Ajansa not exactly working out for them in the long term, and uh, maybe that's because he just didn't seem to exist. Nice burn once again. Starting off with the Benel burn, it's always going to be a great episode when we start off that way. Uh, Rick, let's look at maybe a guy that actually his basketball career did pan out pretty well. Michael Jordan, the Last Dance documentary. We get the episodes in episode five and six last night. And you tweeted out again, the Jerry Krause slander. It is prevalent, man. It is abundant here. I mean, you see Jerry Krause get, uh, Michael Jordan just continues to joke about you know, the, the short jokes uh, surrounding Jerry Krause. And uh, we, we continue to see Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and all these guys want to take it out on anything that Jerry Krause ever loved ever in his life. Oh, I mean, how much does it bother you that Jerry Krause is being portrayed in this manner? And should the documentary have done something differently regarding that specific factor? I don't know if it bothers me. I just find it kind of cartoonish. Um, I do have an idea. I think that somebody needs to write a story that says that Jerry Krause was highly in favor of the coronavirus because mm-hmm. I think Michael would I think Michael would immediately contribute like a hundred million dollars to a vaccine fund. I mean, I just think that you know, <laughs> don't, don't you would... find it really funny that like when Michael heard that um, Krause liked Dan Marley's defense, that that made Michael want to attack Dan Marley on in games like twice as much. Uh, I just, I, I just think that this has become this sort of constant um, comical subplot of this. And, and as I've said before, it's gotten to the point where it's like Jerry Krause is, is the villain at the end of every Scooby Goo, Scooby-Doo cartoon where people are saying, you know, if it wasn't for those meddling kids, I mean, he wasn't that bad. 
Well, Rick, let me ask you this, because we got some criticism from Ken Burns regarding this documentary, and you as a journalist might uh, recognize this within the Last Dance documentary. Ken Burns talked about its lack of journalistic value because they use Michael Jordan's production team, and therefore it can't really be an objective documentary. And despite all of us actually finding the entertainment in this, it can't be a true documentary because it's being used. Uh, it's it's Michael Jordan's production team being used. Did you think that was fair? And what do you think about this entire documentary um, because of, of that, because of the way that they are going about it? I, I think that that's a fair observation on Burns's part. I also thought um, Jay Adande, you know, who used to be a columnist for the LA Times and, and also covered Jordan as a beat writer. Um, he now works for Northwestern Journalism School. I thought he made a really good um had a really good reaction to the Burns thing that this documentary may not be the best one that can be written, you know, that can be done on the material, but it's the best one that could be done. And I totally get that. That at the end of the day, Jordan had the legal power to control all that, all that footage. And, you know, but, but I think, I think the only thing to really keep in mind about this is yes, this there's a Jordan point of view about this, and it was go and that was going to be inevitable, and that is kind of how Michael's, you know, people have protected his image for decades now. That's not anything horrible. That's not anything criminal, but it does mean, and I've said this for years, everything that that he does, you know, you do have to keep that in perspective. A big part of the these two episodes uh, surrounding Michael Jordan uh, had to do with his unwillingness at times to engage in political discussions. Um, he's had a few of those discussions that he was unable to avoid as um, owner of the Charlotte Hornets in the HB2 situation and then in uh, the riots uh, that, that happened in uh, Uptown Charlotte. How do you feel like he's evolved in terms of being a leader on uh, social issues or at least engaging on those social issues? You know, um, I don't think there's anything wrong in each of us individually deciding how much we want to be engaged in politics. And I don't think that is so much the issue. I do think, uh, you know, when Jordan made that, you know, Republicans buy sneakers to comment. It was said in private. Um, somehow it got back to Sam Smith. He wrote about it in the Jordan Rules. I believe that's where it, it first saw the light of day. And to my knowledge, last night was the first time that Jordan publicly acknowledged that that was it is true that he said that. Um, what I said last night um, uh, was that I thought that the facetiousness of that comment has made this probably a bigger deal than simply the fact that he didn't stake out a position in the uh, in the Gad Helms um, Senate race. Um, you know, Michael, like a lot of us, says things to their buddies that are not necessarily exactly how we would want to be portrayed publicly. But that's what it's like to be Michael Jordan. It comes with the territory. And I've got a very strong feeling that if he could take back having said something that flippant about that serious situation, even in private, I'm sure he would. 
Ricky, we've talked a little bit. I mean, you are providing some commentary on Twitter by watching this. Again, you can follow Rick on Twitter at Rick underscore Vanell. One thing you mentioned was Michael Jordan practicing with the Charlotte Hornets one time. And you mentioned that he covered the Adidas logo in reference to the Last Dance documentary's mention of Michael Jordan covering the Reebok logo after they won the gold medal in Barcelona in the 1992 uh, Olympic Dream Team, of course. He covers the Reebok logo when they're accepting the medals, and and he did so even in just a practice covering the Adidas logo with the Charlotte Hornets. What do you remember from that practice? It was it was funny. Um, we they let us into practice at the end as they always do, and the fact that Michael <clears throat> was running five on five with the team and then played some one on one with Gerald Henderson and a couple of other players, it was obvious that they wanted us to see that it wasn't hidden. And you know the players got really excited about about interacting with him that way. And he made some vague comment about how, you know, if it's that if it's that big a deal to them, then maybe they'll play really well and he'll use it as a carrot uh, to go, you know, to go work with them every once in a while that way. And then we heard the really funny stories about the next day. He was so stiff and so sore that he basically told people around him, I ain't ever doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> well, were but, players intimidated, Rick? How good was he out there when practicing with them? They were just enthralled to be part of it. Um, Michael, at that point, I mean, he had gained some weight. He was out of shape, but he hadn't lost his skills. You know, that that fadeaway jump shot, that turnaround that was his signature move. Um, he was still scoring like crazy on, some, you know, on, on a really good player like Gerald Henderson. Um, but I just found the fact that he had gone to the trouble of finding masking tape to cover up the Adidas logo that is on every uniform and every practice jersey that the NBA had at the time. It it shows how obsessive he was in protecting the swoosh. Um, and, and it, you know, it's always made me wonder about that. I mean, um, you would never see an active player do that because they couldn't get away with that. But I've always thought it was really interesting, say, for somebody like Steph Curry, you know, with the huge Under Armour contract, if the fact that, you know, he has seen all the time in, you know, Nike uniforms and Nike warmups that are league issued, um, you know, I just I don't think it's as big deal as, as, as probably Michael made it into. Final question before we get to, of course, the always uh, highly anticipated Hidden Hornets history segment we do with you weekly. Uh, There was news that broke, I believe it was last week from the NBA, that they were going to postpone the lottery and the combine. Rick, what does that say about the uncertainty regarding the pandemic and its effect on the NBA? Well, what they did was inevitable, but the fact that they crossed that line is the first time that something really significant about the off season had, you know, they've acknowledged that it can't go on the way it was scheduled. Um, you know, Walker, and I'm curious what you two think about this. The fact that they have not given up complete hope of restoring even the regular season, much less the playoffs. Um, I just find that really interesting. They're bleeding money. Um, I thought it was when Stern, I'm sorry, when Silver acknowledged that there was literally zero revenue coming into the league office, that's got to scare the hell out of those 30 owners. 
The league doesn't know what to do. The front office the offices don't know what to do. They don't know whether they should act like the season's over or whether they have to keep these players thinking, even if they're obviously going to lottery, that they're, you know, you know, that they might have to play again. And that's got to be really complicated. When Steve Kerr acknowledged publicly that the Warriors are just acting like it's the offseason, whether it is or isn't, that may be true, but I bet the league office did not like hearing Steve say that. Yeah, and it'll be interesting because we just have no clue. A lot of more, a lot more information could come about the next couple of months. And I hope that the NBA postseason happens, of course, given the context that they can do so safely. But who knows if they're going to? It does seem like they are very, very driven to at least get the postseason, Rick. Like, I, I don't think that any regular season games happen. Um, perhaps maybe an extremely modified version and, and ex- an extremely reduced version for that matter. But I, I do think that they're just crazy driven to get this postseason out there, Rick. It, do, do you think that they probably do get some form of a postseason? I, if there's any way in hell that they can do that, they're going to do that. And the reason mm-hmm. for that is the way, you know, um, ESPN, ABC, and Turner those massive television rights fees they're paying for the national broadcasts, they don't make their money back in the regular season. They make their money back almost entirely from the playoffs. And the owners have to be terrified of having to give back all those, that rights fees money uh, if they don't at least have some version of the playoffs. And it doesn't matter how long they have to wait to do it. I'd be stunned if the season was just canceled altogether. It's everybody's favorite segment coming up. I'm just going to say it's everybody's favorite segment. It's mine. It's Doug's uh, Hidden Hornets history coming up with Rick Bennell as we do weekly. The top five worst judgment calls in Charlotte Hornets history should be fun. So stick around for the next couple of episodes. But first, I want to talk to you guys about Built Bar. Built Bar is the best tasting energy bar out there. It's real chocolate, amazing flavors, kind of tastes like a candy bar. Uh, It's not as dry as the other energy bars that leave you desperate for water. And it actually has some really good health benefits for you too compared to the other leading energy bars out there. Doug, I know you have experienced the greatness that is Built Bar. Well, I got a box of these uh, these Built Bar uh, protein bars and I'm trying to lose a little weight myself. So I'm I'm into the whole protein bar thing. But normally these things, like they don't taste very good. So I get these. There's like 16 flavors in my box. And I tried the, the mint chocolate brownie bar it was amazing. And then uh, producer Katie, who is also like into the fitness game right now, way more than I am. She's much more disciplined than me. She comes in and looks at these built bars, turns the package around. And I've got, this is the the sound of the packaging. You know, it's a podcast. So we got to do the sound <laughs> of the packaging, right? Nice. And that was our best use of the audible medium. That is a podcast <laughs> ever right there. That's excellent. So she turns these things around and she goes, oh my God, there's like so little sugar in these things. They, these are actually healthy and they taste good. So yeah, Built Bar is great, man. Built Bar, go do it. BuiltBar.com and you can use promo code locked on to get $10 off of your order. Again, BuiltBar.com and use promo code locked on. You can space it out. It's not one word like usual, right? You can space it out. You can use one word. It doesn't matter. Promo code locked on to get $10 off of your first box at www.BuiltBar.com. A couple more segments to go, including Rick Bennell joining us next on the Locked On Hornets podcast. This is Locked On Hornets. Like, you can't drop a name like Anthony Tolliver into the middle of a ring. It's like dropping a piece of savory, juicy meat 
in, in a lion cage. You know, if you drop Anthony Tolliver's name into this conversation, I'm gonna attack that. it, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna just gonna rip it up. I know that. I know that. Once, hey man, you gotta stay away from Anthony Tolliver. It's gonna make Doug into a rabid dog. I'm tall over it. It's time for more of the Locked On Hornets podcast. In this week's edition of Hidden Hornets History with Rick Bennell, we're going to talk about the five worst judgment calls in Hornets history. Perhaps Doug would say letting go of Anthony Tolliver was one of those. Who knows? I doubt it makes Rick's list, but hey, I don't make it. Whatever Rick says, it's the definitive list. It's not objective for anybody else to argue anymore. It's definitive. What Rick say, what, what Rick says goes. So in store for some more fanfare, the worst judgment moves of all time in Hornets history. Let's start from number five and work our way down to number one. Rick, what was the fifth worst move in uh, Hornets history when it came to their judgment calls? One word. She said. <laughs> Rick, you have number five coming in at Bob Johnson starting C set. Why is that the fifth worst? You know, if, if you're wondering whether anybody's going to care about a about putting an expansion team in a city that just had a real live team that would advance, you know, into the playoffs, you don't make it as hard as hell to for anybody to actually find your games. And you certainly don't tell them in a, in a time way before people, it was normal for people to pay extra for HD television. You don't tell them that they have to pay an extra $10 a month to find your games that nobody was watching otherwise <laughs> way up the dial. Man, that's I such a, that's such too- a great callback. C said, uh, oh, I mean, man. it is Rick. I think you did too good of a job of selling that as a bad judgment call. Now it has to be number one. Like you did too good of a job to say that that's one of the top. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not fifth in my mind. Like that's hilarious. The fact that you would upcharge people to watch games that aren't actually even watching it anyway. That seems like a very bad business model that comes in at number five, though. I'm not going to argue it. Number four, Rick, what is the fourth worst judgment call in Hornets history? Hiring Sam Vincent as coach. <laughs> Bob, Bobcats two and zero right now. <laughs> Why is Sam Vincent the fourth worst? Um, two games into that preseason, Gerald Wallace just looked at me and shook his head with his eyes just staring into space, <laughs> and I said, "What?" And he said, "Wings release," and I went. Huh? <laughs> and he said that Vincent, um, in an effort to try to get into a running game, had said that um, as soon as the opponent puts up a shot, he wants the shooting guard and the small forward to fly in the other direction um, in a full sprint um, so they can get some easy transition baskets. And Gerald, who was a very intellectually sophisticated basketball player, looked at Sam and said, um, do you realize we're the worst rebounding team in the entire league? Maybe the worst rebounding team in the last 10 years. And you want just like one person under the basket to try to get a defensive rebound. Sam was amazing. I mean, if you, if you had chased some hypothetical, you know, worst anybody has ever done, you know, worst hire anybody's ever made. He's, He's in among others receiving votes. The the all the all timer that was hilarious was they had a game up in Milwaukee and there was a brewing snowstorm up there. 
And the pilot had warned them. They had a home game the night before. The pilot had warned them that they needed to get out to the airport as quickly as possible. They had a clearance to fly to Milwaukee, and they needed to get in the air as soon as possible. Sam got cold feet about that and canceled the charter flight that night without informing either general manager Rod Higgins or owner Michael Jordan. When the league found out that they that the coach had made a unilateral decision not to go get to Milwaukee, when they almost didn't get to the game the next day, they were potentially in danger of a half million dollar fine. Wow. It's it's interesting that you mentioned the rebounding and the transition game and how those are related and how quickly players understand you know the relationship between those two things because those are both problems that the Hornets have right now. They they don't get a lot in transition and they are one of the worst rebounding teams in the league, but it doesn't seem like uh, that Coach Borrego is really panicking about that and is not trying to make any gimmick moves in order to to alleviate that. It seems like he has an understanding about what his personnel is and and isn't, and and I think that's a key indicator to a to a coach that's able to you know get buy in from from players because Clifford uh, made a comment uh, after he after he had come back from. Uh, from his illness that kept him out part of the regular season where Steven Silas had to step in. And he made a comment to the effect of like, players can players can know pretty quickly whether you know what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing. And and he was making that in reference to Steven Silas and how difficult it was for Steven to step in in that, in that period. And I think your story about Sam Vincent illustrates that. <laughs> Sam was amazing. <laughs> Number three. Uh, I think that number three is going to make a lot of people uh, mad, not where it's ranked. I think people will absolutely think it belongs on this list, but I think they'll be reminded of this and uh, instantly get angry. Rick, what is number three in your all-time worst judgment calls in Hornets history? Part owner Ray Wildridge in um, ordering the Hornets to intentionally underreport attendance to try to manipulate the relocation process. Yeah. Uh, that's Here's hidden, one. Yes. That's hidden Hornets history, by the way. I don't, yeah. I don't think a lot of people remember that. Yeah, that that's crazy. Um, this this seems like one that would make Hornets fans listening as angry as really anything we're going to be discussing. Rick, uh, tell us about that process, about why that comes in at number three, but also just that entire thing happening in order to try to influence relocation. I'm sitting in my uh, my home office, and there's a nice plaque on the wall from APSE um, for investigative reporting. When me and three other people from The Observer figured out that Ray was doing this in this hilariously systematic way. And the funniest thing about this was, here's what happens. In the NBA, and this is, this is the way that attendance has been um, reported for decades, it's tickets distributed. And, of course, beyond that, you know, teams usually have a turnstile count. Well, Ray, just trying to make this look as bad as possible, told the Hornets to start reporting turnstile count rather than tickets distributed. What he did that was hilarious that allowed us, made it very easy for us to find out what he was doing was the only game where they actually reported tickets distributed was when the Suns came to town. The reason he did that was because Colangelo, the um, owner of the Suns was the head of the relocation committee. <laughs> and he knew that Jerry would look at that number and think, what? 
there were more people there than that. <laughs> well, and of course, Rick, the irony of that is that the t- the franchise for so long uh, carried this mantle of we we sell out the Coliseum, right? I mean, until 1997, they were number one in attendance in the league and and were selling out each and every night. And then by but by the end, they were pulling this gimmick to get out of town. I mean, it was a it was a cruel irony. Um, I think I've told you guys the story about about seeing Ray walk out of a of a room at the um, relocation uh, meeting, just white faced, and seeing Stern walk out behind him. And I found somebody in that room to ask what had gone on, and Stern had poked his finger within a quarter centimeter of Ray Wooldridge's face for 15 minutes using a lot of compound modifiers telling him just how stupid he was to pull that stunt. Yeah. I mean, as painful as it would be, Rick, I mean, I would love to just do an, an entire episode with you an entire episode about, about the relocation, because I feel like looking back on the history that, that I've had a chance to look back on, I mean, it seems like one of these situations where everyone was being silly I mean, from the organization to the city, it does, like when I look back on the history and I look at some of the articles that were written at the time, it just doesn't seem like there were any good guys. Um, actually, Lynn Wheeler was the good guy. Um, she she understood how ridiculous it was for the NBA to leave town because a bunch of people were you know couldn't get on the same page. And Lynn, but, Lynn, Lynn Wheeler was. Um, a significant city council person who who made ultimately made the um, the the new arena happen with new with new owners. We love Hidden Hornets history because of some of the topics that Rick has brought up, and this one no different. I really like this list, and a lot of it has to do because of the top two worst judgment calls in Hornets history. We've gone through the first three. We just went through number three, which we could do an episode entirely by just that specific bullet point. But these next two are interesting. Perhaps you'll be surprised by both of them. What comes in at number two? What comes in at number one? We'll discuss that in our final segment of Locked on Hornets today. This is Locked on Hornets. Have you ever had that one little bug that's just like, it's not completely out, but it's like kind of dangling in there. And then you try to sniff it back up to go away for good. But it's just, it'll, it'll keep popping back. That's what I'm going through right now. It's time for more of the Locked on Hornets podcast. Today is a special edition of Locked on Hornets because we have Rick Bennell for not two segments like we usually do weekly, but we have him for all three. We have trapped him to do a show for us with its entirety, all three segments. Again, Rick Bennell joining us to talk about the next uh, two worst judgment calls in Charlotte Hornets history on his list. We went through the first three. We could do an entire episode on number three on his list. I think that could be the case for the next two as well. I'm excited. Uh, Rick, what is number two on your list when it comes to the worst judgment calls in Hornets history? People are going to say this is too low, even at number two. Um, Drafting (laughs) Adam Morris in number three overall. Adam, we talked about Adam Morrison not too long ago because he appeared on one of our podcasts on the network and he discussed his relationship with Larry Brown. Not Rick, good. Why does Adam Morrison come in at number two on your list? I'm glad you brought up Larry because Larry is the seminal story about all this. Um, if you guys remember one of the strangest things in the world, Adam was so self-conscious that he actually shot a significant worse percentage at home than on the road. Larry brought him into the office one day and said, what's with that? And he, he, Adam, who had all kinds of 
emotional issues, told Larry that, you know, the crowd makes him nervous. And Larry looked at him and said, what the hell do you think goes with being the third overall pick? <laughs> yeah, no, when I, li- when I listened to that episode that he did uh, on rejecting the screen, a, po- a great podcast, by the way, here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Go listen to it. It's like uh, WTF with Mark Marin, but for basketball. Uh, when I listened to that interview, yeah, it does seem it does seem like he was Adam was trying to shirk responsibility on the organization and specifically Larry Brown for his demise. And then, you know, when you hear it from th- some of those organizational players at the time, they'll they're going to put the responsibility on Adam. It just seems like a tug of war between like why why was this guy a bust? You know, that was not a good draft overall. Uh, LaMarcus Aldridge is clearly the best player in that draft. But, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, Kyrus Thomas, um, Sheldon Williams. There were a (laughs) lot of guys who weren't so great in that draft. But remember, you know, when they took Adam third overall, you know, Brandon Roy was still there. Um, (laughs) You know, it wasn't. It wasn't like they were, you know, Rudy Gay was still there. It's not like they were, you know, there there were awful choices. And when you completely squander the third overall pick, what that does to you? I mean, I, you know, I hear people, and I think it's very unfair, um, criti- you know, say that MKG was a bust. MKG was not a bust. You do not start five years in the NBA and and be called a bust. Um, should they have taken Beal? Of course, they should have taken Beal. My point is. The things that were wrong with Adam, his his emotional makeup, his inability to handle pressure, that should have come out in the pre-draft process. And mm. blowing that pick was really, really damaging because they basically have never got anything from it. I feel like we could do an entire episode on that too. I don't know. I just that's that's entire that's that's interesting to me that. as well. And perhaps we can do can one do on the number one moment, uh, the number one worst judgment call in Hornets history. Rick, what is number one as we've gone down the first four? Well, it should be. Uh, what do you, you know, do you think it's going to be obvious to the listeners? You know, I mean, we can talk about it when you reveal it, but I might have been a little surprised to see this one become number one, just given the context. But Rick, go ahead, spill the beans. What's number one on your list? Not keeping Kobe Bryant. (laughs) So here's my question with this, Rick. Kobe Bryant has, I think, given kind of mixed signals on the Charlotte Hornets and exactly what went on. (laughs) He lied. Yeah, right, right. Mixed signals was probably a polite term to say that he lied. So when we talk about Kobe Bryant and why he was selected by the Charlotte Hornets, one Rick, do they do they select Kobe Bryant in the first place if they don't have a trade in place with the L.A. Lakers? Just overall, why do we have number one and, and, and with with Kobe being here, the worst judgment call? And how did all of that go down? Well, something fairly recently has has been become a factor in this, which is that um, Mitch Kupchak, it, you know, told me a story that I'd never heard before. That apparently at the urging of George Chin, Bob Bass made noise about not going ahead through with the deal, Um, that they were having second thoughts about whether, you know, they just needed to keep the rights to to Kobe and 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 ride it out and convince him that he needed to uh, just accept being a Hornet. And I had never heard that story until shortly after Kobe's passing, when 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 Mitch told Rod Boone and I this. 
first of all, you guys know that I, you know, I'm, I'm a great, I, I have a huge respect for Bob Bass and I have huge respect for the way that Bob constantly managed difficult situations. And it's, people trivialize the fact that they got a starting center in, you know, in Vladi, but you know, when you look at it, the fact that they had second thoughts after the fact and at least made enough noise in Jerry West's direction for, to make the Lakers think that they were thinking about not going ahead and making the trade. <laughs> yeah, That's tough. Yeah. And, and that was the question I had. And, and that is kind of enlightening. And I do remember talking a, bit, a little bit about that when Mitch Kupchak revealed they had a little bit of, of second thoughts on dealing Kobe because you know, I think maybe that even helps that argument even more so because if this was a selection that was totally in place because of the deal that they had to go get Vlade, then maybe it's not. Maybe this is something that, hey, this is just something that w was always going to take place. And there's a reason he fell to 13. You know, there are 12 other teams that decided to pass. And I think the, the Nets organization was looking very hard at Kobe, but John Calipari didn't feel comfortable because he had a lot riding on being an NBA coach at that point. I, I find that pretty fascinating, but it comes in at number one. And that that's enlightening to me. That story that um, you talk about with Bob Bass kind of having second thoughts on dealing Kobe Bryant. Uh, were there any other options there, Rick? Like, I know that's really tough to ask. I know that's asking a ton of information, but um, you know, do we have any clue at, about like what other options would have been at that point or, or did they have to deal Kobe given his uh, given his thoughts about the Charlotte Hornets organization overall? Oh, I, you know, I asked Kobe um, when he was a rookie and they, the Hornets were playing the Nets uh, one night early that season. And the next night the Lakers were at the Knicks. And so I stuck around New York and talked to Kobe in the locker room before that game and I introduced myself, explained my this, you know, my context, and I said to him when he was a rookie, "Hey, the Hornets had just played hardball when Vladi was threatening to retire, and they, you know, because I remember at the time Bob Bass said that if Vladi, you know, didn't relent and report, you know, they were, you know, I, Bob said matter of factly, we'll just keep the kid. Um, so I asked Kobe, I said, you know, what would have happened if Vladi hadn't changed his mind? And Kobe smiled and laughed and looked at me and goes, I'd be a Hornet. And, you know, the fact that he acknowledged that to me really made it very strange that 18 years later, he, for some weird reason, he was clinging to the idea that Dave Cowens had told them, you know, we don't need you. I mean, that's, you know, we were talking earlier about, about you know, contriving reasons to, you know, for you know, you know, imagining things so that you can have a reason to be mad, at, you know, in a game or something. Believe me, any anything that Kobe thought about the Hornets rejecting him is a ridiculous contrivance, and he knew better. Yeah, interesting stuff. That that was that was a fun segment. We have now created three new episodes because Rick doing his job well on this segment, Hidden Hornets History. We do it every week. You can follow him on Twitter at Rick underscore Bennell. We've kept them too long. Rick, thank you so much. You're very generous with your time. We always appreciate it. Well, just remember, gentlemen, Rick is right. <laughs> yep, that's right. That's how we should lead off the show every single time. Rick Bennell joining us once again. That wraps up this edition of Locked on Hornets. Thanks again to Built Bar for supporting the show. Now tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of not only Locked on NBA, but also Chad Ford's Big Board and Hollinger and Duncan, all a part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Have a great day and we'll see you on Wednesday.